Thought I could get away. Nope, okay. nobody gets one by Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to do a soft open and then I'll turn to you okay. and introduce you. Okay. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show. I know that you guys watch this show every single Sunday because you want to know more about me, more about my childhood, where I came from. Well, when I was in sixth grade, I tested into a gifted honors group for reading. And the first book that we had to read was a book called Gifted Hands. Does this book sound familiar to you all? I am sitting across today. If somebody had told me my life would be here from the author of that book, Dr. Ben Carson, the Secretary of Housing Urban Development, a renowned neurosurgeon, welcome to the Candace Owens Show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. What an honor. I mean, it's to me, it's just, it's astounding and really not knowing where your life is going to end up. I remember reading this book and Mm -hmm. it meant so much to me because there are just so many similarities um, in my life, where Absolutely. I came from, where my family came from, I think your story really is the black American story. And I want to get into that. Okay. You did not start your life as a very wealthy American. No, not at all. Uh, well, you know, we lived in one of those GI homes in Detroit uh, until my parents got divorced. It was like 700 square feet, but it was our 700 square feet. I just thought it was paradise, particularly after my parents got divorced and you know, we didn't have a place to live. My, my mother eventually uh, had one of her relatives in Boston take us in. And they lived in a typical tenement, large multifamily dwelling, rats and roaches, sirens and gains. Both of my older cousins were killed. That's, that's the environment. And, um, you know, my mother was out working extremely hard, two, three jobs at a time, leaving at five in the morning, getting back at midnight. Uh, because she wasn't enamored of, you know, public assistance. And, uh, you know, she wanted to maintain control of her own life. Right. And so that's an interesting place to start because so much of what I speak about uh, in Black America is just talking about father absence, right? right. And what that actually does, what, what burden that place is when you have just one parent who's working all day. Absolutely. And what happens then for the children is, of course, they're going to be home alone. Their focus is not going to be schoolwork. And so was the case for you. I mean, they wouldn't have guessed when you were super young that you were right. going to be a neurosurgeon in school. How were your grades? They would have thought just the opposite. If somebody had told you this guy's going to grow up and be a brain surgeon, you would have laughed yourself to death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, you know, later on we were able to move back to Detroit. Uh, she still worked very hard. We still live in a multifamily dwelling in a poor area. But at least she was independent at that point. And uh, I was perhaps the worst student that you've ever seen. I thought I was stupid. My classmates thought I was stupid. My teachers thought I was stupid. My mother was the only one who didn't think I was stupid. She was always saying, Benjamin, you're much too smart to be bringing home grades like this. I brought them home anyway, but she was always <laughs> saying that. You know, she was, she was just encouraging, but she didn't know what to do. My brother was doing poorly, and she prayed, and she asked God for wisdom. And he gave it to her. At least in her opinion, my brother and I didn't think it was wise at all because <laughs> it was to turn off the TV and make us read books. And we were very unhappy, as you might imagine. In fact, if it had been today's world, we would have called social services and they would have taken her away in handcuffs mm-hmm. for child abuse. But, Absolutely. But uh, we had to read the books. And uh, as I started reading about doctors and explorers and entrepreneurs, I started realizing that 
the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. And this is, uh, what decade are we in? How old are you? Uh, I'm like, at that point, 11, 12. 11 and 12 years old. Yeah. And what what is America like at this time? Because you're saying, you this young, you realize at 11 and 12 that you are the author of your own destiny. Right. And yet you're living in an America where there's there's some strife. There was a lot of strife. There were always people telling you what you couldn't do, mm-hmm. uh, that you were inferior. At, at that time, I was... Uh, the only black student in my class because we live right on the edge of the black versus white area. And, uh, you know, I was assigned to that school. I would have, they would have put me in special ed, but I was a scrawny little kid and most of the special ed kids were big and they figured they would kill me. So they put me in a regular class (laughs) 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 where I could be the safety net for everybody. No one had to worry about getting the lowest score as long as I was there. But, um, but as I started reading these books, things happen. First of all, I'm looking at words all the time. So I learn how to spell. I'm not the first one to sit down in the spelling bee all of a sudden. And you learn grammar and syntax, but more importantly, you learn to use your imagination. And within the space of a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class, much to the consternation of some of the kids who used to laugh and call me dummy. Now they were coming to me to get the answers. But uh, probably one of the more traumatic experiences I had was in the eighth grade. Uh, when they would give a special academic award at the end of the year to a student with the highest academic achievement. And, you know, I would carry my report card around to each class, teach you what mark your grade. And I came down to the last uh, class, I had all A's. And, uh, you know, I was, I was going to cinch it. My last class was band. I was very good in band. And a band teacher, the turkey, gave me a C to ruin my report card. But to his consternation, it turned out band didn't count, so I still got the award. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, too bad. and when they had the assembly, one of the teachers got up and she chastised the other kids. She said, This, how could you let this guy be number one? You guys aren't trying hard enough. But that was an accepted thing to say in those days. Mm-hmm because blacks were not supposed to be smart. Right. And I remember just sort of quietly seething and saying, I'll show her. And that was that was the way I took it. So would you say that that moment, perhaps for you, represented a turning point in terms of it, it made you more driven to be better it, because she looked at you as this, this black boy. Right. This black boy should not be great get getting better grades than the rest of these white students exactly plus my mother was always reinforcing that she mm. said you know it doesn't matter what color you are it matters what you do with your brain right. and she says you know god has given us all talents and brains and my mother was a, she was probably the greatest person i ever met she was a philosopher and she would say benjamin don't worry about prejudice and racism. She says, if you go into an auditorium full of racist people, you don't have a problem. They have a problem. Because, see, they're going to all cringe and wonder if you're going to sit next to them, whereas you can go sit anywhere you want. Right. <laughs> I say that all the time. I yeah. say, if 
I never have ever said, even though they have me as publicly saying this, I never said that racism is over. Actually, I've said quite the opposite. Yeah. I say there's always going to be racism because sure. there's always going to be idiots. Exactly. There are going to be black people that hate white people, white people that hate black people, men who hate women, women who hate men. Right. The human part of the human condition is hate, as is you know love. Well, people who who think superficially, right? Because if if you think the the color of your skin or your hair or your nose makes you and not your brain, you're a very superficial thinker. You're acting really more like an animal. Right. And, and, and in my opinion, if somebody has a bad feeling about me or is thinking something nasty about me, it's really not my business. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's their problem. <laughs> it's, it's their problem. It sounds like a personal problem. And people don't understand that. Yeah. And now we seem to have people that believe that somehow we can perfect society and get people all to think in a way right. that is accepting of all other people. And, and that is where I think that black America gets stuck in the social mud right. because we're being we're, we're believing that there is something perfectible about society when in fact our belief in that society can be perfected is holding us back. Unfortunately. And makes us easily manipulated mm. and controlled, which is the purpose of many people out there in the public sphere. They just want to control. If if you couldn't vote for them or provide them with political power, believe me, they would toss you in a basket so fast it would make your head spin. Right. That's exactly right. And it's it's so hard for people to come to that awakening, um, which you came to at such a young age in your life. Wow. I mean, yeah. you made it to Yale, yeah. right? Um, you went to that, John and Hopkins. That was, and that was quite an eye-opening experience. What was that like? Well, you know, big, beautiful buildings, Oriental rugs. I'd never seen things like that. Real silver, these paintings on the wall. I mean, uh, I had never even gone to a restaurant before I went to Yale. So, I mean, it was just a total new experience for right. me. You didn't even know that people could live like that. <laughs> it was very, very different. Right. And did you get in on a scholarship? I did. You got in on a scholarship. And I how did. many other black Americans were well, graduated, that, I should say, in your class? That was the first year that they admitted uh, women also, but it was the first year they admitted a substantial number of black students. I mean, probably like five, six percent of the uh, people who were admitted. So it was a, it was a, a, a real time of change that right. was going on in the university. Right. And and so was your experience all great? Was it a? No, um, no. There were there were difficulties, um, but but it, I learned. A lot. I learned a lot about myself. You know, I thought I was really, really smart when I went there. <laughs> Perhaps the smartest person in the world, and if not, certainly in the top five. But <laughs> I very quickly came to the understanding that I was not. And, you know, I almost flunked freshman chemistry, and it was really just the Lord gave me a dream uh, about that chemistry test. And I just aced it. And it just it told me he really did want me to be a doctor. And I, I sort of changed my habits, and I realized that I couldn't do what I did in high school. And that's just goof off and wait until the day before the test and then study and get an A. It just it wasn't working. Right. So right. I changed the way that I did things, and the rest of it was, was not bad. And the good thing was I met my wife. I was going to say, you met someone special, <laughs> didn't you? That was, that was probably the best thing about going right, to Yale. Right, so she was also a student at Yale. And she was from Detroit also, but we had to go to New Haven to meet each other. Right. And uh, 
everybody who knew both of us was always saying, you two should get together. And they were right. And did you get together at Yale University? We did. And you've been together since? We've How many years have you been together? Married for 44 years. Wow. That is yeah. just incredible. And I, and I say that seriously. It's incredible because as someone who believes that the biggest contributor to where we're at right now in black America is the breakdown of family. Absolutely. When you see these families that stay together mm-hmm. and you see how successful they end up and how successful their kids end up. Absolutely. It's, it's such an important ingredient to put back together the family. And, you know, I thought about that seriously as, as my kids were being raised because I was so busy as a pediatric neurosurgeon, and I was traveling a lot all over the world. And I came to the conclusion that my kids were going to grow up and they wouldn't know who their dad was. So I started requiring, whenever I travel, that my whole family go with me. Oh, my goodness. So, I didn't know this. So all the kids had frequent flyer cards for every airline. They travel all over the world, and we had a lot of quality time together. Did they understand uh, what you did? Did they understand that their father was a a top brain surgeon, a neurosurgeon? Well, I I don't think they really appreciated it, you know, at at a young age. But, I mean, they knew it was special because we were going all over, and people were just, wow, wow, all over the place. But uh, but it was good, and, and they all turned out terrifically. Ask you a question. You sep- you you've separated um, conjoined twins multiple times. So yes. I want to ask you a question. What does a doctor do the night before a surgery like that? Where I mean, what just what is going through your mind? Because that to me, I can't even imagine yeah. that. Uh, the same thing that I do when I put in a shunt or do something that's not complex. I pray to God for wisdom wow. and direction, and and that really is the key because. It's a big part of my life, uh, believing in God and recognizing his sovereignty in my life and trying to do what's right. Have you always been that way? Uh, probably since I was a kid. Wow. So your, your, your mother introduced God to you, introduced you to the Bible and Absolutely. those things, and it stayed with you your entire life. You never broke from it. I never broke from it. I, I, I became much more convinced when I was 14. And that was the time when I tried to stab another youngster. And he had on a large belt buckle and a knife blade broke on the buckle. Uh, Had he not had it on, my life would have gone in a very different direction. And I really, that was the day that my life changed in a dramatic way. Right. Because I just realized that God was protecting me and that he had something for me to do. No, it's funny you say that because that's another element, I mean, of your of your past life, I should say, that I was very drawn to is that you, you speak a lot about you used to have a really bad temper. I did. I did too. <laughs> really? I did too. Yeah. I was always in trouble. Yeah. I really was. And and a lot of it was just, you know, I was I was trying to be prouder than I felt, I guess, on the inside. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I came from a, a pretty bad home structure and mm-hmm. I was letting that out in various different ways. So I was always in fights. I, was, I yeah. would be suspended. I was always in trouble. Right. Um, and I look back at all that time now on all the trouble that I was in. And I do think that in many ways God was protecting me because it's mm. so easy easy it is for your life to go into a drastically different direction from one mistake one mistake yeah. one mistake and, and and the rest of your life will be something else and in many ways I feel that you know I was saved for the for the very same reasons yeah. but the difference mm-hmm. is that I had abandoned 
the idea of God. I had abandoned the idea of religion. Right. And I, like I thought that all of that stuff was weird that my grandfather taught us growing yeah. up. And I became very secular yeah. and very worldly mm. and very liberal. <laughs> I, I, I got to the liberal part. <laughs> you did. You did get there. I was very liberal. I mean, I grew up in Detroit mm. and then in Boston and then in New Haven and then in Baltimore, Ann Arbor. I mean, all bastions of liberal thinking so shot. i was i was out there you know and i'll tell you it, what changed me is one day i was i was listening to the radio i did something that a liberal should never do i listened to ronald reagan oh. and i said he doesn't sound like a horrible racist in fact He's saying the same stuff my mother used to say. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald Reagan sounds like my mom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just started saying, you know what, I'm going to think for myself. I'm not going to listen to this group or this group. I'm just going to think for myself what makes sense. And uh, that really started a, a very significant change in the direction of my life as well. I guess that's the day you, you lost your black card, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the day that they're allowed to say that you've lived through nothing and you're not a black man when you begin to think for yourself. Exactly. And, you know, the, the liberals frequently get angry with me uh, when they're talking about racism. And I, and I say, real racism is when you look at me and you look at the color of my skin and you determine what I'm supposed to think. And if I don't think that, you start calling me names. That's real racism. Right. That, and that, that is exactly right. Yeah. And and there's so much work to be done. You know, I had uh, Sheriff Clark on my show a few weeks ago. And he said something uh, that was really daunting to me because I know how accurate it is. And he said that he was sort of pulling back and stepping away more mm -hmm. from the public space because he felt that we're losing the black intellectuals, the great thinkers, right? right. Uh, we don't really have that, especially in my generation as a millennial. And he said, who are going to be the, the Dr. Thomas Souls, the Dr. Condoleezza Rice's, the exactly. Dr. Ben Carson's? Yeah. And that's a scary thing. We're not nurturing thought, and not just in black America, in America in general, right. but in particular, um, having these pioneers like you and Dr. Condoleezza Rice and Dr. Thomas Sowell, which I think you guys all started on the left Maybe all of you were liberal for a little bit, right? I, I, I think it's almost impossible not to be. <laughs> <Right? laughs> yeah, it's an element of your youth, right? right. Um, wishful thinking, utopian society. Um, but but there is a lot of work that needs to be done in making sure that we don't lose that legacy of, of your accomplishments. And, you know, we have to start thinking about how do we provide opportunity for people mm -hmm. so that they begin to see that there's a different way. What's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so delighted with the second chance uh, program that the president has signed into being because so many of our young men go into prison early on with no education, no skills. They serve their time. They come out with no education and no skills. So what are they going to do? The same thing that got them there in the first place. And that's why you have a high recidivism rate. And what's happening with second chances, you know, you're, you're getting people a chance but one of the programs I went to in Florida, we had five employers who would go into those prisons and they would get to know some of the inmates, give them some education, some training, and most importantly, a job. Mm -hmm. So when they came out of prison, instead of going back to their environment, the next day they went to their job. Right. Recidivism rate plummeted. And they turn out to be such good workers. 
that now instead of five employers, they have 135 employers. They have more job opportunities than they have people coming out of the prison. And that's what can happen, but it's a matter of us realizing that these people are our resource. They are our best resources. And as a society, instead of just punishing them, we need to be thinking about what can we do to change the direction and the course of their life. Right. And, and, you know, that's been my purpose at HUD here also. Instead of just putting people into programs, let's see how many people we can get out of programs and into a state of self-sufficiency where their real talents can contribute to the strength of our nation. You know, this is reminding me, when I first met you a couple of years ago in your office, you said, my goal is to work myself out of business. <laughs> and that's such a brilliant way of putting it, right? And I, I think of that with Blexit, right? Like, yeah. I, I want there not to be a need for a Blexit because, mm -hmm. you know, people don't even think that black people aren't thinking by themselves. Right. And so many of the things that you're working on is specifically garnered towards that mm -hmm. goal. Um, yeah. Well, what's encouraging me is, as I go, I go around the country a lot, and I'm talking to progressively more black people who are waking up. And they say, man, we understand what you're doing. We really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for being courageous. Uh, I hear that all the time now. But I also run to a lot of people who will say that in private. They will not say it in public mm, because see. they're afraid uh, of the consequences. Mm. And, and that is the whole purpose of political correctness, to frighten people into compliance. Yes. And I think, I think we're going to see... Um, some interesting results. I don't, I'm not sure in 2020, but I, I, I do shift that a lot of the political orthodoxy is changing. Yeah. And it's in large part due to people that are just going out and saying, you have a responsibility to think. Yeah. You have a right to think, right? And, and, well, and I, think a, I think a lot of the American public is much smarter than people give them credit for. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that they're going to be ready to throw away what we have in this country for Venezuela. <laughs> I don't think so. We are actually, there is, uh, California basically is becoming a socialist. <laughs> I'm talking about California yeah. here because I know you spent some time there recently. And I make the joke when I'm on the road that, you know, we do actually have a socialist country in America. It's called California. <laughs> for those of you that haven't been there, yeah. I spoke uh, in San Francisco in, in that area right. a few weeks back. And, uh, you know, I make the joke, but it is, it is sad. It is what happened to California so quickly, just due to policies. And yeah. you're particularly doing a lot of work today in the space of homelessness. Right. Well, I, th I think in California, a lot of people meant well, uh, but, but they don't understand what true compassion is. True compassion is not petting someone on the head and saying, there, there, you poor little thing. I'm going to take care of your needs. That's not true compassion. True compassion is setting them on a pathway to you know, realize the potential that God has put in them. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, when I went there and I went to, you know, Skid Row and other places, and, and you look at the faces of those people on the street, faces that have lost hope, and you realize that the policies that have put them there are not good policies, and we have to do something. So the president and I have talked about this a lot, and many people in this administration, we've got to do something. We would prefer to do it with the authorities there, uh, working in tandem with them. 
But if they won't do anything for the people, we can't just leave them there. Right. There's no question about that. It's hard, and, and I had mentioned this to you before we got started, but I have such a unique perspective on homelessness because I, you know, I have uncles that live on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of it, by the way, just what we were talking about, made decisions in their youth, ended up in prison, right. in, in and out of the system their entire lives, right. and they become drug addicts. Um, mm-hmm. And they will choose drugs over anything, Absolutely. over an opportunity, over a home, over a family. Drugs People becomes- who don't understand addiction can't identify with it, but it is a monster that mm. takes over your life. It is. It's, I mean, it's, it's, and it's really heartbreaking and it's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to imagine a world where you can alleviate, you know, so many homeless people when if they were given the opportunity, right. they wouldn't take it because of the addiction. Correct. So are these some of the conversations that you guys are having behind, behind yeah. closed doors is how Absolutely. it's such a big problem. Right. And, you know, I, I met a few weeks ago with the, um, the president and CEO of the American Psychiatric Association and some of the colleagues uh, to talk about what can we do about those people who are on the street. Uh, You know, their feeling is, you know, if you can get them into a stable setting and and get the kinds of wraparound services so that they can get their medications and their counseling on a regular basis, uh, that's probably the best thing you can do outside of, you know, them being in a place where they're taken care of all the time. And uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, though, because as you mentioned, a lot of times you offer them a place to be and they don't take it and they won't take it. And, you know, then you get into the question of, you know, should there be some course of activity uh, because it's for their own good, and that becomes a very complex argument. Right, it's complex. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think I think it's incredibly complex, and because I've seen it firsthand and, and stared it in the face, right. I can I can be a bit harsh about it. Where I say, right. you know, these these this is just what they want, right? I mean, there is no they've we've offered them different paths. They just don't take it. And I think people need to understand, you know, what a tricky position that we're in. And just be grateful that we have people like you that are actually taking a look at this issue and wanting to help. Yeah. And it definitely helps to have a doctor. Right? <laughs> well, we will find a solution. The, the, the places where I find the greatest success is places where the, the federal, state, and local government work together, along with the for-profits, the not-for-profits, and the faith-based organizations. Instead of fighting against each other, they combined, recognize that they can do something about it. You know, I find here in Washington that there are people whose names I could even mention, but I'm not going to, you know, who claim to want to help the poor and help with their housing, who won't even talk to me, won't shake my hand, anything, uh, because you're evil. We hate you because you're associated with this. Uh, how, how do you solve problems when you have people like that? But we have to move away from that, and we have to always think about the people themselves. What can we do for the people? Because they are our most precious resource. We only have 330 million of them. It sounds like a lot of folks, but it's a quarter of what India has. It's a quarter of what China has. If we don't develop all of our people we're not going to be able to compete in the future. Let me ask you a question. What drives you? 
because you don't have to be doing this. You could you could go live a great life somewhere, so accomplished. The whole world loves you, no matter what. You're you are Dr. Ben Carson. <laughs> you've got movies about you. You've got a wonderful book that they're forcing sixth graders to read and get inspired off of. What drives you? Um, probably James one twenty seven. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. God puts us here for a reason. And every single day you wake up and and you keep going because you have this belief and you have this faith. Absolutely. I love that. I I really wish that is just something that I wish could fall on everyone's ears, and it will because every single person in the world watches the Candace Owens show. (laughs) (laughs) Only if they're wise. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we wrap every single episode by actually allowing you to leave a voicemail for the world, or I guess it's it's kind of a voicemail. You're going to look into this camera, and we're going to give you two minutes, and you can say anything you want. Um, Make it inspiring. (laughs) Ready? Yes. On your market set world, I give you the wonderful Dr. Ben Carson. You know, every day I wake up and I thank God for the fact that I live in this country. You know, I've visited 68 different countries. I've lived overseas. I've been to some very wonderful places, but no place that really compares with the one that we have. And we should be doing everything we possibly can to preserve it for our children, for our grandchildren, and all the people who come after us. Before the United States became a world power, go back and read about what the world was like with the tyrants and the monarchs and the people who tried to absolutely control everyone's life. People have forgotten about that. I guarantee you if we go off the scene, it will return. We don't want that. And we want to also recognize that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. It is within our ability, each one of us in our sphere of influence, to decide whether we want to be hateful, spiteful people or do we want to cultivate real love and acceptance, not this artificial tolerance where you only tolerate people who believe like you do. But what can you do as an individual in your sphere of influence to create success for other people? Isn't that what it's all about? That was great. Thank you so much for joining the Candace Owens Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for what you do every day. (laughs) That's a wrap. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.